0: Good evening. I want to welcome any visitors that might be here. On Sunday night, we take a verse-by-verse exposition and general commentary. On Sunday morning, I take an in-depth section and, and hit it with homiletics with three points in that. And this way, you get a broad understanding of verse-by-verse exposition, and a, like a river cuts wide and deep, so that when you move through a book, by the time we get done, you've got the general exposition with the cultural background, the historical thing, And you've got in-depth messages so that when done with that book, if I never come back to it, you know what that book's all about. And that's important. I'm not so interested in just reading and getting through it fast. Um, You're supposed to do that on your own time. (laughs) And so this way you grow and you mature in Jesus Christ. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Nahum chapter 1, please. Nahum chapter 1. Having looked at uh, a full introductory of the book of Nahum, as we do with every book, we begin this verse by verse exposition. He's the seventh minor prophet, as we've seen, and um, God had spared Nineveh at the preaching of Jonah. We've seen the book of Jonah, Um, but now a hundred years later, it's about six sixty to six fifty BC when Nahum is speaking. He's called to pronounce judgment over the city of Nineveh for returning. To their vile and sinful lifestyle. Um, I don't know why people have such a hard time. Understanding and believing what the Bible says. When we make statements like this. People say yeah thank God that's the Old Testament. Do you think people have changed in the New Testament? (laughs) It's always the same. Read the book of Hebrews. Some of the most severest warnings. About Walking away from God is to the believer. Now, many who don't believe that will teach the book of Hebrews as for non believers. They were priests, they were Jews that really didn't completely become saved. Well, that's reading into it. He calls them brethren over and over again. He speaks about having tasted of the light. Jesus made the firm mention of that in John 15, with the vine and the branches. And he goes from the illustration to people. If you do not abide in me, you will be cut off too. Book of Romans says the same thing in chapter 11. Colossians says the same thing. Peter says the same thing. Paul says the same thing. So I don't know why people in the church have such a hard time with it. Fifty years after the proclamation of this judgment, Judah would be comforted hearing of God's righteous vindication of his holiness in judging Assyria in the year 612 B.C. According to the meaning of um, Nahum's name, which means comfort or consolation, a play on words in chapter 1, verse 1, as we'll see here, with the last two verses, chapter 14 and 15, that was one of our points this morning. And so, speaking of things before they happen, so when they happen, you know that God is the one that reveals and not a man. Nobody can predict the future today. Now, there is a great move and push of, um, within the church of men and women calling themselves Prophets and prophetess and apostles and declaring that authority and um, it's not biblical and they do it to somehow for you to submit to them or to have them in awe of you, you know, because they're more spiritual than you. Not so. It's glorified Pentecostalism that's always been here, just wrapped up in different garb. You have the Bethel Church, the latter reigns. Um, the Toronto or what I call the Tonto blessing. Um and, and it goes on and on, it just progresses, it it um it just mutates and it picks up some more junk on the way. And so here in the book of Nahum. It's a simple three-fold division. In chapter 1, you have the proclamation of the destruction of Nineveh. In chapter 2, you have the description of the destruction of Nineveh. And in chapter 3, you have the vindication of the destruction of Nineveh. In other words, Nineveh deserved to be judged. God has never judged anybody and said, oops, I made a mistake. Now, you and I can make mistakes and judgments. But God knows the heart completely, so there's never any mistake. And he's perfect in judgment and holiness and knowledge and everything. And we'll see this as we move through the Scripture. So here in um, chapter 1, we have the proclamation of the destruction of Nineveh. Uh, Verse 1, the introduction says, The burden against Nineveh, the book of, of the vision of Nahum the Eshcolite. And so once again, the nature of the message is very clear. It is a burden, it means a judgment, it's prophetic divine judgment to Nineveh. And this is found throughout the scriptures, uh, the prophets, Isaiah 13.1, one, Ezekiel 12.10, Habakkuk 1, one, and all, all the prophets. Uh, the burden, uh, the judgment that God is bringing to them. And the word is also used in a technical way for the revelation of God that he's revealing through the prophets. Um, find in Isaiah, find in Malachi, and many different uh, books. Now, the judgment was against the um, incredible capital of Assyrian um, Empire, um, Nineveh, a modern-day city of Musul in Iraq. We're familiar because of the war and we're familiar with those names, so it's kind of interesting that kind of parallels as we move through here. Um, established by Nimrod back in Genesis ten eleven, 11 um, Nineveh proper had the four cities and uh, situated on the edge of a trapezoid um, kind of shape. Um, metropolis believed to have been about 300 to 350 square miles an incredible city um, bound by the Tigris rivers and the Kosar river and um, the Geyser Sioux and, and then mountains in the background and so it was very well fortified and when you build a city you always look first for water and then for highways because you need water when the enemy comes you have to have a water source and you can always bring that water source into the city, and then you can plant within your city. And then highways to be able to protect and cut off people and defend your city. Those are very important because when people come and they're going to destroy you, they surround your city and they cut you off from everything. So you've got to have that source. Now, you remember in the, in, in, in the time of Hezekiah, he, um, he, um, he carved from the, the pool of Siloam to the pool of Ijon a tunnel, and some of you have been to Israel with us have walked through it. And, um, and they, the men started from one end to the other, and they met in the middle. And there's just a little jagged thing, maybe about three feet. That's amazing. It, it's a long tunnel. And then they covered the water source. And this way, when they were surrounded um, from the enemy on the outside of Jerusalem, they would have a water source. So water and highways are two very important things. Uh, when you go up north and you see some of the uh, city of Megiddo, where Solomon was, where he kept a lot of stables of his horses. And we'll go up there also this next month. Um, we have the great highways there. You defend it from the people coming from Egypt and from north and all that. Very important. Um, and, and so this um, city was just well fortified. To, um, it had molds, um, can, canals, um, gates, levee gates that went from the river Tigris. And it was fortified with... Uh, Towers and, I mean, walls that were, as we said in the introduction, uh, uh, just 200 some feet high and just impressive uh, buildings. Um, When we uh, looked at Daniel, the same thing with Babylon. Because remember, when these individuals um, conquered other nations, they, they took all the people and made them their slaves, they had a workforce. And, um, and and they chose the cream of the crop like Daniel and his friends, and the ones that were smart, and they assimilated them, and, and the Babylonians were good for that because this way they could uh, maintain order from those who they had brought in, and they would, it would work for their good. Uh, not all did that, but uh, Babylon did. And um, and so here the city is just uh, impressive, um, but Assyria uh, was a constant uh, oppression to, to Israel, as we see as we move on. The mode of revelation, notice, is um, the proclamation of a vision, the vision again while uh, you're awake. Um, This is um, repeated through the prophets, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. He says he had the vision of Isaiah, Ezekiel 1, 1. Daniel had the vision, Daniel 2, 9, and many other prophets. And the dream is when you're sleeping. And God used both of those. Now, it's interesting that... um, uh, when we look at the gifts of the Spirit in the New Testament in uh, Romans 4, uh, 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14, and Ephesians 4 and, and uh, 1 Peter where he tells us about the, that we have at least one gift. There is no gift of dreams or visions. Um, so many times people come and ask me, you know, I, I had a, a dream. Uh, can, can I tell it to you? Maybe you can tell me what it means. I don't, don't bother. I, I, I don't know what it means. If God gives you a dream or a vision, if it's really from God, then God will give you the interpretation. And if he does give you the interpretation, it's not going to contradict the word of God, but he's not going to give you a new revelation in addition to the revelation that we have. Okay? He may be confirming something in your life and directing you in some way, but you're the only one that can know if it's of God or not, and it won't contradict the word of God. And I I say this only because there's so many people today within the prophetic circles of this uh, emergent and, and prophetic movement that, that claim this kind of gift. And, they, um, and, of course, if you would even call uh, some attention to their credibility, they would uh, mark you as, um, as a troublemaker, uh, one who doesn't believe, and really um, you're opposing what God wants to do. Not so. We are to examine, to those, examine everything according to the word is truly of God. And that's your responsibility and mine. And so, um, here again, Nahum identifies himself as the recipient. Nahum is named Comfort, Consolation. Um, his proclamation of judgment is for uh, Assyria. It will be a great comfort to Judah when they hear about it in chapter one, fourteen, and 15. And um, Nahum is found only this time in the Old Testament, uh, the name. Uh, it is found one time in the New Testament in Luke 3.25, in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And Assyria uh, uh, had already taken the northern kingdom in 7.22. Um, Judah will not go into captivity until uh, 606 in the first siege through Babylon. Uh, But at first, um, Nineveh would um, be um, conquered, and it would fall in 6.12. And so um, God would vindicate himself of, of all... Their sins against him. Um, Patient he was. um, uh, We see it from the beginning of times in the flood that he waited 120 years. We see um, the Tower of Babel, the same patient God waiting to see if they're going to obey. Not that he didn't know if they were going to obey. He knows it from the beginning. Um, But if we want to really narrow it down to real personal and simple application, look how patient he is with you, with me. Uh, That that should say everything. And... uh, God is so um, incredibly merciful to all of us and, uh, and he never jumps the gun or he never is too quick to lower the boom. But um, he, he would much rather forgive, much rather to redirect, He much rather to guide our steps than to bring any form of judgment. It's a strange way for him to do business with mankind, Isaiah says. Um, he, he judges reluctantly because he's our creator. He's created you for fellowship with him, myself. And his heart breaks as he sees humanity lost, as he sees people after the way I was without Christ, just living for myself, doing what I want to, as good as I may be, as moral as I may be, it doesn't matter, I'm lost. And uh, God desires for us to come into a personal relationship that um, he might take hold of our lives and that we might glorify him. And so Nahum's hometown Uh, The here, uh, some believe, is a town in Assyria, ancient Nineveh, the modern-day Mosul by the Tigris River. But um, it's doubtful that he was from that northern um, portion of Assyria, that he was not taken captive. And others uh, have a village about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem in Judah, and that's probably where where he came from. He probably, if he was from the north, and then the north was taken captive, he probably moved down to the south. So you have the town's name up north, have it down south. And you also have the city of Capernaum, city of Naam in Galilee. And uh, so certainly gives us the idea that he was from the Galilee area. So he, because of whatever reason, he is prophesying to Judah. Um, it's most likely the one south of, of Judah there. And so in verse 2, He says, God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves truth, wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and in the clouds of the dust and his feet and he rebukes the sea. And makes it dry and dries up all the rivers, Basham, Carmel, Wither, and the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him and hills melt and the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. So here we have um, the credentials of God to be able to judge Assyria. Verse 2 there, in the beginning of the 3, the holiness of God is qualifies him, he is jealous. The jealousy of God is not like ours. It's not selfish. It's not tweaked. It's not tainted by sin. Um, Basically, it means that God will not tolerate or permit any rivals. When you come to him, he wants you for himself and no one else. And if you're going to have any fellowship or dealing with anyone else, he wants you to have it with those of the family of God. Those that are going to edify you. Those that are going to Pray for you, those that are going to be there for your good. Just like you who are married, you want your wife to have fellowship with people of who you approve. You don't want her to be disrespected or abused or for her to go wayward or anything else. As parents, you want your children to have fellowship and to be around people who are going to be good for them. So any sort of true love is very protective. But again, sometimes we get tweaked and all that, but this is the the love of God, which really indicates the holiness of God. Um, It's for our benefit, for our good. Um, The word holy appears 123 times in the book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus. There he gives the law and the Levitical sacrificing and the atoning of blood and everythings. God is holy. We serve a holy God. And sometimes people think that Jesus is just a man upstairs, their friend. Yes, he does call me his friend, but he's holy. And that we're to be holy as he is holy. Never perfection, never thinking that we have arrived. I'm always under construction until I get there, but he is a holy God. And so he desires for us to grow and to mature and to obey. And he gives us the ability to do so by his spirit and his word. And so he's about to execute justice to avenge. Now, the avenger doesn't mean revenge or to get even like we do sometimes because that's our sinful nature. If somebody does something to me, I want to get even or get a little furthermore, right? Uh, sometimes people quote the, um, the law that says eye for eye, tooth for tooth, right? And, 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 they, and they, they think that that's a command, you know? It's really um, a limitation on your anger. It means that if, if, if someone knocks one of your teeth out, then justice would be one for one, not what you want to do, ten for one. In other words, we want to go beyond this. So that that principle is a limitation on my wrath, on my corrupt vengeance, really. It's not a command to get even. God does not get even, but he does vindicate his holiness. And so God can never be accused of being too quick to judge again. He has all the information. He's very patient. Um, He's slow to anger meaning long nostril. In other words, he, he doesn't lose it. Sometimes you may see somebody um, being provoked by someone and, and, you, and you just are in awe of the control of this person because you would have perhaps said, man, if I was me, I would have, I would have blown it. And we admire when we see that. And God is the epitome of that type of example. And certainly if um, you walk with God for any amount of years, you know how impatient you were before Christ and what a miracle he's done in your life through giving you the grace and the sufficiency to deal with life and the things of life and with people knowing that God has been that for you first. And so to those who much is given, much more is required. And that's the thing that as Christians we understand that. Even as Paul says, what do you have that you have not received? And if you have received it, why are you boasting? And so we see ourselves as debtors. Though we have this rotten sin nature still with us that's ever there to be in opposition to our new divine nature given to us. And there is a warfare, there is a friction, there is a tension. But I must put on the mind of Christ. I have to yield to the Spirit of God. I have to deny myself. I have to pick up my cross. I have to follow Jesus. I have to resist the devil and draw nigh to God. All those things have to go on all at the same time. Reckon the old man dead, putting on the new man. And um, sometimes it's not that bad, and sometimes it's hand to hand combat. Sometimes it's tough. But um, you and I have not experienced anything that no other Christian has experienced in past ages. And God says that He will never allow us to be tested more than we're able, but with every testing, show us a way of escape. So, I really have no excuse when I do blow it. All I can do is confess it, acknowledge it, and ask forgiveness. Because whatever way of escape he gives me, it will be sufficient. Whether I take the way of escape, that's a different matter. And the greatest example is Joseph, as he was enticed by Potiphar's wife, and she said, lie with me, and he just ran off and she hung on to his cloak that he had, and he ran out naked. He took the way of escape, the only escape. And uh, it shows us over and over again God's faithfulness. And he suffered tremendously for being righteous, right? Because who would believe such a thing of a young man? But I have a I have a feeling that Potiphar knew his wife. That's why he put him in his um in the king's prison, <laughs> not in the regular prison. And so. God, again, demonstrates his ability to judge because here he's able to control nature. Um, He um, controls the weather of nature. Very picturesque language there in verse 3. He controls the winds, the weather. Uh, He does as he will. The storms, his hands in it. Um, The clouds, he describes as the dust of his feet. Kind of a very picturesque theophany here, running through the sky, kicking up dust. Uh, 58 of the 87 times clouds are found in Scripture. The context are theophanies and appearance of God um, as he moves through the sky and everything else. He's in control of the water and the earth also. You know, we uh, are constantly told that we have to conserve water now. But we've seen also in our messages and through the other prophets that judgment is always uh, brought by God. One of the ways that he brings judgment is withholding rain. Water, famines, food, all of that. We look at the judgment of the book of Revelation. You have, uh, you have wars, you have famines, you have pestilence, you have disease, all of that. They follow one after the other. God's direct hand at times, sometimes through natural uh, catastrophes and that. And um, he's in control of the waters of the earth and he, um, he can turn them on and turn them off. That's no problem for him. Um, Job, the, uh, the man who was tried tremendously, speaks much in chapter 38 about God's ability to contain the sea, to control it, to bring rain, to shut it up. Um, everything. There, there's nothing impossible for him. And yet, as you think of the, of the power that a storm has or a wave has or, or, or a snow blizzard, and yet he's, he, he's the one that put it all together. You think about keeping the world afloat a thousand miles per hour, just going around and in that little line of light and equally distant from the sun, the moon, so that everything is just an equal thing and the tides with the moon and coming in, coming out, and the seasons, everything. It makes you kind of tired thinking about it. And to him, it's no big deal. Colossians says he holds all things together. He, he, he's in control. He dries up the water, so it's even as Elijah, remember when um, God told him that there was not going to be any rain, and he, um, he sent him um, to the brook Cherith, and um, the ravens fed him with bread and meat by day and night, and he drank water until it was, um, it was shut off in First Kings 17, 5-7, seven, and that was again judgment against the northern kingdom for their idolatry, everything else. If you look and if you put your Bible on your left-hand side and you put the newspaper or the news or the culture that is going on today, you have idolatry. Now, the idolatry of that day, most of them were very lewd sexual religions. You have the same thing today. You have just the, the saturation, the, I mean, flooding of pornography you have uh, the, the low morals, really amoral. There's no morals at all. Um, I think the universities are up to 15, 16, or maybe more categories of sexuality now. The Bible just says male and female. But now they've added all kinds of things, right? So it's the politically correctness, right? And so nobody can make judgments. And yet you see the decay of our society in such a way where they call evil good and good evil. And you've seen, if you're of any age, you've seen the progression. But you've also seen that progression with great acceleration in the last 10 years. And, um, and yet, God is working. He's saving people. He's doing the work. But it's in the midst of a very dark, dark time of man's um, existence. He causes vegetation to wither. Basham, Carmel, withers there in verse 4. He's talking about the highland regions of the north, very fertile um, areas of, of Israel, the forests. Uh, we'll be there next month, Mount Carmel. We'll get off on that and Carmelite Monastery, and we'll see the Valley of Megiddo. To our backs will be the, uh, the port of Haifa, the Mediterranean Sea. It's beautiful there. Lebanon Mountains that run south of, in Lebanon and, and west of the Becca Valley, uh, north of Israel. Um, very fertile, very fertile um, land through there. Uh, in fact, the Hiram floated um, the um, cedars down from Lebanon for the building of the temple for Solomon in 1 Kings 5, 9. And they came in at the city of Joppa. And they brought them on shore and from there they took them to Jerusalem. Now, in verse 5, notice God shakes the earth through earthquake. We've had some earthquakes pretty uh, this week, last two days. Okay, I think last week there was a couple in Japan, pretty big ones, and uh, yesterday um, I believe in Ecuador, uh, two pretty big ones. Uh, they keep telling us about the big one here, but the big one's really in the Book of Revelation, where every island is uh, is not found, or the mountains. <laughs> That's a real big one. Um, but earthquakes can be scary. But you know, I've been in the Midwest, and these guys are under, um, you know, hurricanes uh, in the coast, and then you have. Uh, you know, all, all these storms that come through, tornadoes, they just wipe out an entire towns and everything. Uh, I mean, nature is, is fierce. And yet, God controls it all. Doesn't mean that He's bringing judgment in every movement, but sometimes He does specifically. We just don't know when He's bringing judgment. But if we study our Bible, we know that God uses nature to bring judgment, and He's in control. Um, in fact, um, Amos one one dates his prophecy um, in the days of Uzziah two years before the earthquake. Um, Jesus, as he was crucified, the Father brought earthquakes there at the crucifixion in Matthew twenty seven fifty four, and at the resurrection of the tomb in Matthew twenty eight two. And so, God brings some of these things for His glory. Um, the hills melt um, p- very picturesque of uh, flash floods of mudslides or of things that that happen because of the weather or the earthquake plus rain or different things um, there's, a, there's a portion going up um, PCH or down the freeway up towards um, Malibu and there's an area of a whole mountain that came down maybe 25 years ago that buried an entire community A small community. They weren't able to get out. And things like that take place. Sometimes through natural means. You know people move too close to the ocean. People move too far in the forest. And pretty soon they get up one morning. And the bear has them for lunch. You know I mean they move into the territory of the animals. You know sometimes it's just our foolishness. We we just encroach upon them. And so. um, God is the creator. He's in control of everything. But notice in verse 5. Um that there uh, he says, yes, the world and all who dwell in it, so he 's just finished how all this stuff quaking and everything, and people should should fear God, they should quake before god but but we don 't see this we don 't see this in non believers, and we don 't even see it that much in the church today. And the church has become sort of a place of entertainment or a place of fame and And kind of like flashiness. um, That you would sit here for an hour and study the Word of God. They think you're crazy. They think I'm out of touch. And yet, the church is to teach the Word of God to people, to instruct them, to warn them, to build them up, so that you can go out and live life and depend on the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to be entertained? Go watch a movie, go to a concert. We'll play some ball. That doesn't mean that we don't do anything fun. We have a lot of activities, but it's always based on the study of the word of God. It's what's going to build you up. And it's not simply entertainment. And so, in verse 6, he says, Who can stand before his indignation? The answer is a rhetorical question. Nobody. When God is bringing judgment, no one can stand before him. And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? Second one, none. His fury is poured out like fire, pure judgment. And the rocks are thrown down by him. In other words, it's deserved. Kind of reminds you of the Old Testament of when there was a rebellious child and the parents would bring him before the elders and say, you know, there's a rebellious, uh, disobedient child he doesn't do this, that, whatever. And they would bring him to the elders and they would take him outside the city and stone them. They didn't have juvenile delinquency buildings. They, they, they took care of matters. They respected their elders. They understood authority. Today, everything is against authority. Every, it's, it's, it's open anarchy in every way. And so therefore, everything is at risk. In verse 7 down to 8, we have the perfect justice of God that qualifies him. He says, the Lord is good, the stronghold in a day of trouble. And he knows those who trust in him. So those who are looking to him. And God is, is good, stronghold. That's one of the attributes of God, the goodness of God. It endures forever. It's an attribute that's communicable to man. In other words, he imparts to us the attribute of goodness so that you and I have a potential to do good things in the love of God and by the Spirit of God. And his goodness endures forever, the Scripture says. But our goodness is not unto perfection like his. And our goodness is not consistent like his because we always have that flaw of sin nature still in us, right? But... We should be more consistent and more on target than we were before we were born again, right? Because now is God living through us as we yield to him. And so, once again, it's that combination of God working in us and through us as we yield to him. The heart of man is deceitful, desperate, wicked, Jeremiah 79. From the beginning, God said that man is consistent in 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 evil in genesis 6 5 all the days of his life and so um i i don't understand the philosophy of of the world that says that man is good i don't know where they get their evidence i don't know what part of the world they're getting it from um if they start with themselves they would never find that why would they find it anywhere else and so the Bible speaks very, very clear about man being a rebel, a disobedient towards God, and his need of being ruled by God. Jonah, remember, said that the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, Lord God, is merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. In Jonah 4.2. Also Moses, Exodus 34.6. And so again, the graciousness of God, the patience of God as he, he deals with mankind. Um, the righteous man depends on God for protection, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And if you're a Christian, you know, there will be plenty of trouble. Jesus said, in the world you shall have tribulations, be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. And that's, that's a promise. Paul spoke to the... Um, uh, those that he went in the first missionary journey, and he says we must enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations and, and testings. And so, and yet we as Christians here in um, in America really um, have it much better than the church has had it throughout the ages, or even in our own age in other parts of the world, because at least you and I have the freedom to gather together. You, you could have stayed home tonight and done something else, but you chose to come and to sit under the word so that God can minister to you as you lift your heart to him. Um, uh, what, what, what Christians would give in other parts of the world for the freedom you and I have to be able to come together and study God's word. They, they don't have that, many of them. And so sometimes it's, uh, it's easy for us to say, well, I, I won't go tonight. And that doesn't mean that you have to be here, that you can't ever miss or anything. But what I'm saying is it's, it's a different perspective. There's a different urgency. There's a different value that's held to something that is uh, prohibited to somebody, even at the point of, uh, of costing them their life, maybe. And then from being able to choose whether I want to go to church or not, or whether I... You should read the word or not without any penalty or consequences at all. It's a whole different matter. And so those who trust in the Lord, Second um, 2 Timothy 2.19 says the same thing. And if we're trusting in the Lord, God knows those of are this and we depart from evil. You know, it doesn't mean that we don't have the potential for evil still. It means that we, we run from it. We, we, we ask God to strengthen us. We, we move away from it um, as a matter of habit of life. Um, in verse 8, the contrast, it says, but, uh, um, but with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its place. And darkness will pursue his enemy. And so in, in verse 8, um, we have here just the prophecy in a manner of destruction here of the overflowing of the Tigris River which um, we get confirmed at uh, chapter 14 at the end and also in chapter 2.11 and 2.6. uh, The complete desperation of the Assyrians and darkness will pursue his enemy. So they were terrorizers of people. Uh, They just um, wanted to put fear in people's lives and they would um, be very vicious in the mutilation and um, the way they would torture people and tearing them apart and burying them up to their neck and uh, smashing babies' heads on the, on the rocks or whatever it was without any mercy and there would come a day when they would, they would in themselves now re- be on the other end they would be on the receiving end um, I, I can't find the fear of man as one thing but when God is after you uh, there has to be the most horrible fear in the world uh, when you stand before a holy God or the a holy God is judging you and, 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 and puts you within his sights, if you will. Um, I can't even imagine that. Chapter 3, verse 13 says, Surely your people and your midst are women. The gates of your land are wide open for your enemies. Fire shall devour the bars of your gates. So in chapter 2, we're going to see the very description of the, the siege and the horror that took place. And he, he gives us some reasons why it took place. As verse 9 now, down to 15, the certain execution of this judgment over Assyria by God. So in other words, he's proclaiming it. It hasn't happened. But when God declares something's going to happen, it's as good as having been happened, if you will. It's done. It's for sure. It will take place. God has never said, you know, I kind of blew it there. What I meant is this. No. Verse 9. He says, what do you conspire against the Lord? He will make another end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. So in other words, uh, uh, as we said this morning, this is irony. Uh, conspire means uh, to plan or to devise. What is it that you can devise or plan against God? Uh, do you think that you can get over on God when God has pronounced judgment on you? Do you think you can escape it? Do you think you can get away? Where are you going to hide? Where are you going to run? No, Jonah thought he'd go to Tarsus, right? Now, he didn't think that he could hide from God. He just wasn't going to go to Nineveh because he hated the Ninevites. But, but sometimes people in the world, they think that, you know, there's no God and it's just all the figment of people's imagination and everything else. But here again, he, he confronts them. What, what, what are you going to do? He'll make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. So in other words, God will not have to take a second pass through Nineveh. Just one time, one wipe, and that's it. It's done. You know, God just brought one flood. Destroyed the whole world, except for eight people. God brought down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. Only Lot and his two daughters made it out. So when God judges, he doesn't have to say, well, I'm going to need about three tries to get to do this. No. There's no difficulty with God. verse 10 he says for while tangled like thorns and while drunken like drunkards they shall be devoured like stubble fully dried and so here the Assyrians are um, characterized by their true character They're like these thorns, you know, they're just dry, they're dead, they don't know it. They afflict others, they afflict themselves, and yet they're going to be, they're they're worthless, they're only good for the fire. Now, the devastation of Nineveh was so great that um, for over 2,000 years, people thought that Nineveh was really a myth, that the Bible had mistaken Uh, information. And it's not the only time it's happened with the prophecy of Tyre and the Hittite civilization and many other things. And yet God goes out and gets some archaeologists and has them dig something up and and proves the um, quote-unquote secular as well as the liberal Christian community of the um, um, seminaries that do more damage to the scriptures and help them at times. And um, God allowed um, Lazarus and Boda to discover the city of Nineveh in 1842. And um, the excavation and all the records and documentation is there in the British Museum, just in great detail, everything. And once again, um, the Bible verifies that it's absolutely accurate. And that um, even if we couldn't find Nineveh ever, we know that the Bible says it took place, so we know the Bible is absolutely true. But God gives us so many examples in modern day of excavation that verifies it. You know, when when people are doing digs, whether they are Christian or non-Christian, they only use one book, the Bible it 's so detailed it 's so accurate, the maps, the regions, the areas, the things that happen, and it always verifies the scriptures, so the illustration here of the prophetic judgment in verse ten, their destruction, and the drunken like drunkards again, uh, their overconfidence in the city that it was uh, fortified that no one 's going to penetrate through it, nobody can come in and you know that happened again with Belshazzar in the book of Daniel, right? And the Medes came in. Underneath, they deflected the Euphrates River, came under the levee gate as prophesied in Isaiah. And they took the city. And that night, Belshazzar was dead. And um, the Medo-Persian Empire walked in. And um, it's amazing the ability of God to just declare judgment and bring it to pass Um And of course, drinking never helps anything. Um, People are always asking me about drinking, and um, I always tell people, uh, tell me one good thing that has ever come from a bottle of beer or a glass of wine. Nothing. More people are killed through alcohol-related accidents and everything else than any Thing else than any other disease that claims lives. It's like smashing seven or eight, seven twenty forty sevens. I forget how many days out of the month continuously. And yet, you know, they want to call it a disease. Well, you know, how did you get it? Did you walk across a bar that had a door open? Some jump in you. Did you bump up against a drunk and. Then you were infected the next morning. It's not a disease. It's a choice you make. Now, later on, you may have cirrhosis of the liver. And every time you drink, you will burn more cells than you can afford to lose from your brain. So, you know, and yet there's a big push today within the Christian community. Well, you know, you guys are too critical, too judgmental. Okay, go ahead. Go for it. Come back and see me in five years. See how your marriage goes. See how you treat your wife, your husband, your children. See how you deal with life. See if you can stay with just one beer, one glass of wine. Let's see what happens. It's like saying, well, you know, I'm just going to cut back. I'm just going to fornicate once a month or something. Really? But we don't look at those parallels. But when people make that Connotation, then we call them critical, judgmental, right? Legalists, no. We're to stay away from all appearance of evil in every way. And then let me ask you another question. If you do drink and the brother says, hey, do you drink? Now now you've got to... Well, I do it private. Okay, somebody asks you, hey, do you drink? You've got to lie or you've got to tell the truth. And if you tell the truth, you can stumble them, right? Bible says we're not to stumble one another, right? So we got a heavy responsibility towards each other. Let me go further, deeper. How about your children? It's private, but your children are watching you. And when they become teens, do you think they're going to believe you when you tell them, do not drink? Well, daddy, you drank. I'm just going to have one. And they go out and kill somebody or kill themselves. Well, they mess themselves up. So there's great responsibility we have, and we can't just um, ignore it. Now, in verse 11, he says, From you comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. So in verse 11, um, this is a reference to... um, Sennacherib. Um, and also, the wicked counselor is his um, counselor that he sent, Rabshakeh. If you remember in 2 Kings 18, um, the men on the wall were confronted by Rabshakeh, blasphemy in the time of Hezekiah, because Hezekiah took down all the altars of the, of the um, of Baals and the high places that Israel had syncretized with the worship of Yahweh. And so the Assyrians logically concluded that this is the way God was worshipped by the Jews. So they said, "Don't don't trust in Hezekiah. You know he's taken down your altars of Yahweh. So how can how can he defend you? You know." And and, and God didn't take it lightly. And you know Isaiah guaranteed Hezekiah that not a shot was going to be. A, um, Fired, not an arrow, not a a Syrian would come in, and he sent out um, an angel and wiped out 185,000 front line of Syrian troops in one night. And so, God, again, in, 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 in odds of impossibility, and this stuff is not just what the Bible says, these can be correlated with the records of Assyria. And we have much more information from those cylinders that we find in everything else of Assyria. So um, it's an amazing thing. And in spite of the evidence, you have people always say, Well, you know, the Bible, you know, man wrote it. Really? You think man's that smart? Man is a moron. He doesn't have enough sense to know how to run his life. We must repent. We must ask God to lead our life from day to day. And remain in a humble position. Because the natural nature of man is to exalt himself. To think that he doesn't need God. He doesn't need anybody. I'm sufficient in myself. That's always a mistake. In verse 12 and 13, you have the futility of Escaping God's judgment, but trusting himself in their numbers and security. Again, here he says, Thus saith the Lord, the divine authority, though they are safe, and likewise many saw the city as a great place of security, a fortress. Many, multitude. Um, and Jonah told us in Jonah 4.10, 120,000 infants. couldn't you know the right from their left hand, right? So there's different opinions, maybe 800,000, maybe a millionth time now. They believe that this time is a lot more. And and yet um, here um, they were trusting in that security by the fortress and the numbers. But yet in this manner they will be cut down. When he passes through, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. So God used Assyria to humble um, Judah, to discipline Judah. And Isaiah 10, 5 says that Assyria was the rod of his wrath. But now he was going to cut it off. The metaphor of plowing is used for now he would break off the yoke. In verse 13, he says, For now I will break off his yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. So God was going to bring judgment in 712, but they're also going to begin to go into captivity to Babylon in 606 for the first season. So you've got 612, 606, you've got six years that God is going to fulfill this prophecy here at the end of the chapter, a window time that God makes that happen. Now Manasseh, that's another miracle this morning I spoke, spoke about. It. I don't want to get sidetracked. But he was the most wicked king and he came back and he, he, God forgave him and he began to do good. But the nation was already so corrupt. But this aspect of the fulfillment comes in through the reign of Josiah. So the yoke refers to Assyria. The bondage just refers to Judah. The bond that's broken. He would remove that bond because he would bring judgment upon them. In verse 14, he says, The Lord has given a command concerning you. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. You'll cease to exist. Out of the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved images, the molded images. I'll dig your grave, for you are vile. The authority of God again. He gives the command, the charge. It shall be perpetuated no longer, cease to exist. When's the last time you heard of an Assyrian? None. The verdict is sure. I will dig your grave because you are vile, contemptible. And so in verse 15, he says, Behold, on the mountains the feet of him who brings good tidings. Who proclaims peace, O oh, Judah? Keep your appointed feast. Perform your vows. For the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. This verse in the Hebrew Scriptures is verse one of chapter two. And sometimes, when you read critical commentaries, they will attach verse fifteen with verse two of chapter two. Um, they think it's out of order. I leave it as it is. I don't mess with it. I just take it as it falls, and I seek to find out how it fits in within the context. Um, the proclamation is the news that Assyria's destruction would comfort um, Judah. All of a sudden, their um, bondage is broken. They're no longer oppressed. So now they're able to fulfill these vows and these feasts. And the, during the reign of Josiah um, in King, 2 Kings, there, he fulfilled it. He led a great reform. Josiah was a great king. Read the book of Jeremiah when the Josiah died because he disobeyed God and he went out to try to stop, um, Pharaoh Necho coming to help, um, um, the king of Assyria. And he got killed in Megiddo. And, and can you, can you mess up and, and, and die before your time? Yes. But you'll die right on time, whether it's because of your stupidity or because you're walking with God. (laughs) And yet in 605, in the battle of Carchemish, then the army of Assyria was totally destroyed. And so the good news, the comfort here towards Judah, they performed this. So Josiah is the one that fulfills this prophecy in that little window time of six years. Then after Josiah, of course, you have uh, Joash, and then you have um, um, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin and then you have Zedekiah and then you have the three sieges of Jerusalem and then they're in captivity for 70 years and all of the ten tribes of the northern king that were in Assyria displaced all over then they're taking the Babylon also because Babylon becomes the next empire to come so God uses nations to judge nations as we said this morning and God is doing that today I have no 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 qualm about that, I have no doubt about that. And here he's quoting Isaiah fifty two seven. Isaiah is using it for the second coming for salvation for the remnant of the Jew, Israel. Paul uses it in Romans chapter ten fifteen for us, Jew and Gentile, one in Christ Jesus, the goodness of the gospel of peace shalom. So they prophetically, when the judgment came in six twelve, it would be peace to them. The yoke is broken but for a little while. For us, for the New Testament, it's the good news of Jesus Christ that he died for our sins. And Isaiah is looking to the second coming when the remnant will call upon the Lord. Blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentile comes in. Then all Israel will be saved, Paul says. And so the celebration would be That point when they would celebrate their feast and carry their vows and all of that. Again, God declared they would do it. God would declare he would give them the means by which they would do it. And Josiah was the king that that allowed this to take place and fulfilled it. And so as you study the prophets and you put them back in the books of history, um, history: You have Joshua, Judges, Joshua, versus Joshua, uh, uh, Samuel, Second Samuel, First King, Second King, First King, Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles, uh, and you put the prophets back, and then you have the prophets that are um, uh, pre-exilic and post-exilic. You know, and and you see how they fit in. We're almost through with the minor prophets, and. Uh, and it would have been nice if they put them all in their order in that. They have a chronological Bibles and it kind of fits them in. And sometimes there may be a doubt where they go exactly, but but if you look at the content and the time, then you can fit them in. And you see God just confirm His Word, no contradiction at all. In fact, they supplement, they give you a bigger picture. It uh, kind of, you know, there's a hole here and you read this guy and you put it here and you see, oh, and it all comes together because God knows the end from the beginning. And so... The proclamation of the doom of Nineveh is proclaimed in chapter 1. Was there any doubt that it was going to happen? Not at all. Notice God warns before he brings judgment all the time. Because he's just, he's good, and he's holy. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, and your goodness. We love you, we thank you. We pray, Lord, you continue to deal with our hearts. And Lord, I thank you for just every person here. And we pray for those that perhaps are here don't know you, Lord, over the internet perhaps. And the Lord, you will speak to them, Lord, of their need of you and, and salvation and how much you love them and how you want to forgive them and just transform their lives. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved. To turn from your sin. It's a simple prayer of repentance as you believe God's word that He became sin for you, who knew no sin, that you might be made the righteousness of God in Him, recognizing that you are a sinner and sin separates you from God. But if you acknowledge that and call upon His name, that He will forgive you and give to you eternal life. That's His word. And the gospel is just encapsulated in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever bullies Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There's the invitation. Whosoever, I presume you qualify. It makes no difference what's happened. Makes no difference what you've done, what has been done to you. The blood of Jesus Christ can make you a new creature, He says, and give to eternal life. So if that's your desire, this prayer... It's your prayer to him, not to us. And he will forgive you right now and transform your life. You can repeat after me if you like. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord.